We are continuing this morning our study of the life of King David to help prepare us to celebrate the coming of the true and future King Jesus. And whereas the past few weeks we've talked about a lot of the victory that David experienced in his life, this morning we're going to turn to a different focus as we we think about the brokenness of David's life. Over the past few weeks, we've seen David accomplish some pretty incredible things, or God accomplish some pretty incredible things through David. I mean, he killed the Philistine giant Goliath with a, a few stones and a slingshot in order to protect people of God. God anointed him and allowed him to ascend to the throne of Israel, despite many threats against his life, specifically coming from the present king, Saul. And then when David finally did ascend to the throne, God ushered in through his reign unparalleled peace and prosperity among the people of God. There's a lot to celebrate in the life of David, a lot of of victories that he has experienced, but It's important for us to remember that as great as David was, he was also greatly consumed by sin. As many victories as he experienced, he also experienced crushing, crushing defeat. It's a weird balance that we see in the life of David. At one point, 1 Samuel 13, 14, the Bible refers to him as a man after God's own heart. And we see the faith of David in the face of unparalleled odds being displayed in God. And if you turn a page and, and suddenly the faith that was expressed in one chapter is now overwhelmed by sin. David was great, but he was deeply flawed. He did incredible things, yes, but he also did some tremendously bad things. And the Bible wants you to see both. The Bible doesn't want you to make more of David than you should because your hope should not be in David. Your hope should be placed in a greater king. And the Bible wants you to see that David did some incredible things, but he was not ultimately the hero of the Bible because he was deeply, deeply flawed, sinful like the rest of us. And perhaps the greatest display of David's sinfulness is found in 2 Samuel 11 the story of his interaction with Bathsheba. The scripture says in 2 Samuel 11, 1, that in the spring, a time when kings should have been out in battle, David was walking around on his roof. And as he's walking around, he notices a woman bathing. And the tragic reality is that he does more than just notice her. He pursues her pursues her. He inquires about her. And even after he finds out that she is married to a a warrior named Uriah, who is at that moment fighting on behalf of David and the people of Israel, defending the very kingdom that he is ruling over, he does not consider her marriage a thing to stop his pursuit of her. He didn't care. He summons her and he sleeps with her And as you can imagine, she becomes pregnant. Now that doesn't sound like something you'd read in the Bible. Sounds like something you'd see on a Lifetime movie or something, right? I mean, 
dishonored, the David and Bathsheba story. Abuse of power, David and Bathsheba. But it's here, and it's a bad situation. I mean, how does a man after God's own heart start doing this kind of stuff? I mean, he abuses his power, commits adultery, and now the woman that he sleeps with is pregnant. So how is he going to respond? If he's a man after God's own heart, how is he going to respond? Now, we know how he should respond. If he was operating in godliness in that moment, we know how he should respond, but David doesn't respond that way. In fact, he tries to cover his sin. And if you've spent any time reading the Bible, you know that when we take matters into our own hands to cover our sin, the situation only gets worse. He calls for the husband of Bathsheba, a guy named Uriah, to come home, hoping that while he's on leave from his time fighting, that he will enjoy the comforts of his home and indulge in the privileges of marriage and the hope that when he does that all of this situation will be resolved because everyone will think that it's his baby that's about to be born and not David's but Uriah shows way too much honor to do that he vows that he will not enjoy any pleasure at home while his men are out there fighting a battle David tries to get him drunk to to let his inhibitions be moved aside. But Uriah still will not go home. And when David finds out, he panics. No matter what he does, he cannot cover his transgression. And so he does something extraordinary. He goes to an extreme. He orchestrates the murder of Uriah. Writing to the the leader of the army, Joab, to say to him, orchestrate his death. Put him at the front, and when battle's engaged, you move your soldiers back. You make sure that he dies. Isn't it interesting that he he sins to cover his sin? But who's going to cover that sin? Is he going to sin again? What's going to cover the sin that covers that sin? Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible we see David doing in this story. And, And what's surprising is that It doesn't seem like any of this is truly shocking to David. He's so consumed with his sin that he doesn't even realize the shocking nature of what it is that he has done. In fact, when the the messenger is sent from Joab to tell David what's happened and that other servants have died, other soldiers have died along with Uriah, here's how David responds in 2 Samuel 11 verse 25. He said to this messenger, here's what you're going to say to Joab. Do not let this matter displease you. Okay? Don't let the guys who died and the fact that you helped me carry out the murder of Uriah, don't let that displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city. Overthrow it. Encourage him. Encourage him by what's happened. David seems pleased. And while it may have been pleasing to David, it was not pleasing to the Lord. Verse 27. When the morning was over for Uriah, David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And let me just declare to us today there's something that pleases you, but it doesn't, displ- it doesn't please the Lord. 
He's going to get the final say. And so God raises up a prophet named Nathan to come and reveal David's sin to him, to confront him. And Nathan does the revealing in the most clever way. Let's, let's read how Nathan rebukes David in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 6. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks, very many herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Many of you in this room have dogs that I'm sure you would think of like this. And then there came a traveler to the rich man, but he was unwilling to take one of his own flock. Remember, he's got many. Unwilling to take one from his own flock or his herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb, killed it, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He's angry, David. He's got a a king's anger that someone would take advantage of someone who had so little in this way. And perhaps one of the most dramatic uh, mic drop moments of Scripture, Nathan turns to David and said, you the man, it's you. You're the one who did this. Because you who had much took from Uriah who had nothing. And what's more, to add insult to injury, you orchestrated his murder. David, God did not give you this kingdom. He did not give you this authority for you to to abuse it. To use it for your benefit and to kill the very people that God has entrusted to you. So because you have not honored the Lord, you will feel the judgment of God. There will be consequences and you will lose the son that Bathsheba will bear to you. And confronted with his sin and the consequence of his sin in a moment of incredible despair and brokenness and anguish, David pens one of the most incredible psalms, Psalm 51, in response. Let's read together. David's response to this confrontation that God allowed him to have to his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me 
not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. These first 17 verses of Psalm 51 are stunning, honest words written by a man completely destroyed over his sin and its consequences. What I want you to see this morning is that, as has been true with the entire story of David, there's a lot that God wants to teach us through the story of David about the greater story that he is writing in Jesus. There are foundations to the gospel laid forth in this encounter with David and Bathsheba. You see, the story of David and Bathsheba shows the danger of sin so that it can point to the glory of God's grace. It shows us the danger of sin so that it can point us to the, the greater glory of God's grace. And of course, those, those two elements of the story of David are central to the story of the gospel. We need to be confronted with our sin. We need to be re- reminded of the danger of our sin. We need to feel the conviction and the weight of our sin, but we also desperately need the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of God's grace to point us to a place of hope when we should have no hope. And that's what we're praying for you this morning, that that somehow you would find that balance. That somehow as we unpack this story and how it prepares us to understand the gospel and the greater work of Jesus, that you would feel conviction. That if you're outside of Christ, you would feel condemnation because of your sin, but that you would not stay there. That you would would see the hope that God has provided for us in Jesus and that your conviction and condemnation would quickly give way to comfort as you rest in the grace and the mercy of God. Yes, this story is about sin, but it is also about grace. And that's where we want you to rest this morning. So let's, let's unpack these two crucial aspects of the story of David that also help us to understand this greater story of the gospel. Let's talk about sin. How does the story of David help us understand the nature of sin? Well, first it reveals that sin is the result of misplaced affection. What the story of David helps us understand is the root of sin, why it is that we sin in the first place. You see, David desired something he never should have desired. He desired something that was off limits to him. He's in a place he wasn't supposed to be, desiring something that was never his to have. As soon as he got the report in chapter 11, verse 3, that Bathsheba was a married woman, he should have stopped his pursuit. But David believed a lie. 
a lie that many of us in this room probably have believed before, that that moment of satisfaction that he would get in sleeping with Bathsheba, that moment of pleasure was worth it. That, that moment of disobedience was worth it. He believed that, that sin, that rebellion against God would give him greater satisfaction than the satisfaction that God could give to him. And isn't this the nature of sin? When we consider God himself and we consider all that God has given us and we say to him, it's not enough. You're not enough for me. Even though you created me to be satisfied in you, I'm going to say to you, my creator, that you and what you have given to me is not enough. And I'm going to take all these things that you created to point me to you, and I'm going to try to find satisfaction in them. It's idolatry. As we reject God and we reject the blessing and the gifts of God as not good enough. And as you can imagine, when we make this kind of declaration to God that He is not and all that He has given are not good enough, we offend God deeply. It's the second reality of sin that we find in this text, this story. That sin is primarily an offense to God. How could it not be? Every single sin that we commit, everything that we do that dishonors the Lord, every act of rebellion, it's primarily an offense against God. I, I'm always struck when I read Psalm 51, when I get to verse 4. And David's declaration as he's you know, crying out to the Lord. He says to him, to God, against you, you only. And there's like this stress there, this drawing your attention to. It's very important what he's saying here. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I always think, well, yes, but. I mean, I understand that David's offended God. But there's a lot of other people who have felt the consequence of this, right? There's a lot of other victims in this story. I mean, Uriah died. I mean, David slept with his wife lied him about it, tried to cover it up, and then murdered him. Seems like he was sinned against, right? He's a victim here. The soldiers, people fighting for a cause they believe in, that died in David's orchestration of Uriah's death, they're victims here. What about Bathsheba? We don't really know her posture in all of this, but when the king summons, you don't get to say no. And then on top of that, he murders your husband so that he could have you to himself. There's a lot of victims in this story. So how is it that, that David would write in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned? Well, I think this is a, an exaggeration on David's part to prove, a point, to prove a point for us. But as offensive as sin is to us, it is infinitely more offensive to God. In fact, the offense to God is so incredible that it is as if it's not offensive to us. That's how, how great the gap is between the offense that we feel towards sin and the offense that God feels toward sin. Yes, 
Sin causes brokenness here. Yes, sin leads to betrayal and adultery and death. It leads to brokenness between man. But the greatest consequence of sin is the separation that it causes between us and God. He's holy. He's righteous. And those qualities of God will not allow, will not stand for rebellion from His creation. See, David, he forgot where all this blessing came from. How could it not be offensive to God to sit up there and watch what David is doing? Remember, God was the one who plucked David out of a field. No one on earth thought he could be king but God. His own family didn't think he was going to be king, but God did. God called him out of anonymity and allowed him to become king. It was God who allowed David to experience the spectacular, surprising victory over Goliath. Does it make any sense that a a youngin with some stones and a slingshot should beat the greatest warrior on the planet? No, if God's not on his side. Was it Was it David who protected himself when Saul was coming after him with the full force of the Israelite army? Was it David that that earned the right to sit on the throne of Israel? No, every single thing that David is enjoying and abusing at this very moment was given to him by God. And yet he thought, I'm entitled to this. I deserve it. And I can use all of it to satisfy my desires. Selfish. Pleasures, the kingdom, the victory, the power, all given to him. It was not his to use, however he desired. It was all used, meant to be used, for the glory of God and the good of his people. And that leads us to the third reality of sin. Not only is it the result of misplaced affection, and primarily an offense to God, sin is destructive. It's destructive. It always costs something. And it usually costs more than you think it will. It costs David a great deal. Think about the destruction, the devastation that comes from this sin. It ended a marriage. It costs people their lives. This decision, David, to sleep with Bathsheba and to keep covering it up, it changed the course of a kingdom. And worst of all, it set enmity between David and God. And let me just ask you, do you think that David thought about any of this when he was standing on that roof? Do you think he considered for a moment the wake of the destruction if he called Bathsheba to come and sleep with him? No. It's always the way, isn't it? When we sit in the consequence of our sin, we think, if only I could have seen before I sinned what I now see after that twilight of regret. Oh, if only I could have remembered the reality of sin. Sin never delivers on what it promises because it is founded upon a lie. It can never deliver what it promises. It's it's fundamentally a lie because it can never satisfy you the way that God can. It can never bring blessings or pleasures in your life the way that God alone can. It promises satisfaction, but it will always lead to destruction. And remember, the fourth thing that we see is that sin must be accounted for. 
It's destructive. We see the evidence over all of creation. We are born in iniquity. Sin is all around us. And that sin must be accounted for. A holy and righteous God will not allow his creation to stay in brokenness forever. Stay in rebellion forever. He will not let his people continue to live in sin because he cannot be in fellowship with a people who are consumed with unaccounted for sin. His character demands that something or someone has to pay the price for this act of rebellion against God. I talk to people a lot of times who are in the midst of struggling with sin and there's always that question of who cares, right? I mean, honestly, who, who cares? Who's really hurt? Who's, who cares what I look at on my phone or the pictures that I take and send to someone? Who cares who I date, right? It's none of their business. Who cares what I waste? Who cares if I don't spend my money in a way that is, you know, honoring to God? Who cares what I say? Who cares about the words that come out of my mouth? Who cares if I spread gossip or am overly critical, destructive in my words. Who cares how I numb the pain of this life? As long as it's successful. Who really cares about that? God cares. God cares. God cares about how we use the life that he's given to us. God cares if we don't honor all that he has blessed us with. Honor him with all that he's blessed us with. God cares. And all that sin must be accounted for. Listen, it cost David his son. And not only that, he had to step into the sacrificial system to allow an innocent lamb or some animal their blood to cover his sin. Now when we hear all this, it can be overwhelming. When when we're confronted with the reality of sin, the danger of sin, it can be overwhelming because all of us are sinners And my guess is is that the number of people in this room, there are some people today who are still consumed with sin. Either because you haven't given your life to Christ yet and you still feel condemnation anytime somebody talks to you about sin or you're in Christ and you've turned to an old well. You've returned to your vomit, the the proverb says. And you started believing a lie again. And you're feeling the conviction and the weight of those choices right now as we speak. You can feel condemned, convicted, paralyzed, and think that there's no hope for you to get out. You'll never be of use to God because you are so consumed with sin. And in some ways, that's healthy. It's important to feel the conviction of sin. It's important to recognize that apart from the work of Christ, you do stand condemned for a holy and righteous God, but that's not where the story ends, friends. If we only told that part of the story, we'd still be living in the Old Testament. That's not the end of David's story. It's certainly not the end of the gospel story. Because, yes, we should feel the weight of sin, but we should also feel the hope of the gospel. We should feel the the gift of God's grace that allows us to move through that conviction into Worship. This story teaches us about sin, but it also teaches us a greater reality of the grace of God that has fully been given to us in Jesus. And that's where we must rest. That's where we must sit today. 
at the end of the day. So let's talk about the grace of God. And the hope that some of you are going to get delivered from the sin that has consumed your life. What does the story teach us about God's grace? Firstly, it tells us that, that God does not let his people stay in ignorance about their sin. If you are in Christ, you are only in Christ because God, through the proclamation of the gospel, opened your eyes to the reality of your sin. It is a gift from God that you have been confronted with your sin and, and offered the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even on the other side of that saving work, it is still a gift of God that allows us to be confronted with our sin and given the opportunity to repent. God loved David enough to send Nathan. Isn't that incredible? I mean, here David is thinking he's fine. It's pleasing to him. But God loved David enough to send Nathan to tell him, it may be pleasing to you, but it is displeasing to me. What an act of grace. God could have wiped him off the planet, could have washed his hands of him. But instead, God loved him enough to give him an opportunity to repent. Friends, I hope you see that same gift is provided to you today as part of the people of God. Can we rejoice in the gift of Scripture this morning? Right? The, the light, the, the mirror of Scripture. When we read this, we see the holiness of God. We see the greatness, yes, of God. But we also see the brokenness of man. When I read David's story, you know who I see? Me. Yes. But it's no laughing matter because I'm broken. Because I, I see the inclination of my sin in the story of David. And it allows me a moment before a holy and righteous God to feel the conviction of the Spirit, confess it in repentance, and be set right before Him. That's a gift that God's given us. The gift of godly community. There are brothers and sisters in the faith who will not let us continue to walk in rebellion. That is a gracious gift from God to allow us the opportunity to repent. To live in a way that, that brings blessing in our life and that furthers the work of the gospel for the world. And here's the promise, second thing that we learn about God's grace. Once we're aware of our sin and we repent, God receives the repentant. He receives you. You don't have to wonder. If I say I'm sorry, will, will God receive me back? The answer is yes. Psalm 51, 16 to 17. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a humble or a broken spirit, a humble and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When you come forward in repentance, when you offer your heart to the Lord, it is no longer a question of where you stand before the Lord. When you come in repentance, God will receive you. You have not been rejected forever. You've not been rejected forever. Even when you messed up, you are not lost forever. The same repentance that allows you to, to come into the kingdom is the same repentance that sustains you in the kingdom. Not in a saving way anymore. You're already there. But in a, in a fellowshipping way with God. To know that we will be received is a great truth of the gospel. And thirdly, 
God can receive us because our sin has been accounted for in Jesus. Your sin costs something. You know that? You may feel the effect of it here. You may recognize that it cost you something here, but there's a larger cost to your sin. If, if we do not have Christ, if we don't have the hope of Christ, if we don't have the, the promise of Christ, our end is destruction. Eternal destruction. But friends, Jesus took our destruction upon himself so that we could hold to the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. For those of us who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Think about this. David broke almost every single commandment in this story. Ten commandments, right? Um, He coveted a neighbor's wife. He lied. He murdered. He had other gods before God. I mean, we could go down the list of all the commandments that he broke. There's a lot of sin in this story. But that just allows the grace of God to abound all the more. There is provision. God has made provision for all of this sin to receive David back in a repentant state. There was a sacrificial system then, right? That that blood covered his sin to be restored. And I want you to hear me today. There is a greater lamp whose greater blood has permanently covered all of our sins so that when we repent, we can be fully restored to a holy and righteous God. David's sin cost him his son, but hear me, our sin cost God his. But only for a moment. Because three days later, he would rise from the grave and give us the greatest victory that we have ever seen on the earth. Your sin has been accounted for. And here's what, I, here's what I know. Even now, there are some of you who don't believe what I'm saying. Because you say, Jared, I know that you say my sin is accounted for, but if you just knew, if you just knew how bad my sin was, if you just knew how dark my heart was, there's no way God could receive me. I, 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 think, I, I worry about it all the time. If someone around me and this church just knew how bad I was, I would be rejected forever. And that same fear exists between me and God. Let me just give you a newsflash this morning. He knows. Right? God knows the deepest, darkest, most ugly places of your heart. And He has still chosen to love you completely in Christ Jesus. That is great news, friends. That you don't have to wonder where you stand before the Lord. Your sin has been accounted for. And if you come forward in repentance, you will be received. Praise be to God. And listen, don't don't diminish the work of the cross by believing that lie. Because when you say your sin is too big, what you are indirectly saying is that Christ's sacrifice was not big enough. That's a lie. It was. There is no sin that you can commit. There is no multitude of sins that you can commit that are greater than the work of Christ to cover. You rest in that, friends. That's good news. And there's greater news. There's more good news? Yes, it's Christmas. Let's rejoice together. Not only has your sin been accounted for, the fourth thing we learn about God's grace is that He will restore your joy. Mm, this is good. He's going to give us true joy. Psalm 51.12 
David prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's so easy to forget where true satisfaction is found, where true joy is found. This, the, that, that recognition we had, that moment we repented first and believed in Jesus. We gave our life to him and we, we saw the folly of this world and we ran to God and the provision that he made in Christ. It's so easy to forget that living in a broken and fallen world and sometimes we need to be reminded. Reminded of where true joy is found. And the Lord does that for us. He shows us the lie. He reveals to us the folly of pursuing joy in this world. And he convicts us of our sin, leading us to repentance and reminding us where true joy is found. Friends, in the midst of sin, that's not a time to run from Jesus. It's a time to run to him. And remember the satisfaction God has provided for you in Christ. Oh, what a glorious gospel. What a good story God's written for us. And I hope that, that story is your story. There was a time when you were confronted with your sin and in response to that conviction of sin, you repented and you've been received by Jesus by God through Jesus. It's a wake-up call, friends. We need to stop loving sin. It's a lie, and it will never deliver what it promises. I've said this before, but when I counsel people who are stuck in sin, patterns of sin, especially in the church, more often than not, it's not they don't know what to do, they just don't want to do it. Because they're believing that lie that sin is better. You need to stop it. Stop believing the lie. And the power of the Holy Spirit recognize where true joy and satisfaction is found and believe that what God has for you is better. That obedience to Him will give you greater blessing and pleasure than you could ever imagine. And disobedience will only bring death. And it's also stop being over, overwhelmed by sin when we fall. Let's allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come and rather be overwhelmed by grace. And rejoice in what God has provided for us. How can we respond this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you repented and believed in Him? If not, oh, that today would be the day when you would respond with that conviction and repentance. But for those of us who are in Christ, are we living in the joy of our salvation? Are you in some serious sin? What lie are you believing about that sin? And would today be the day that you repent and return so that the Lord can restore your joy? I can't think of a better way for us to, to respond to this type of sermon than in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Because this is a moment for the, the body of Christ to reflect on where they are before the Lord. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you to not partake of this, to abstain. And consider the testimony of the people in this room. That we were condemned and now we have been saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. His blood covers us. His body was broken for us. And now we have found life through his death. 
And after that, we'll give you an opportunity to respond to that gospel proclamation for the rest of us in the room. If you are in Christ, have you been living like you were in Christ? Well, Will the testimony of this moment reflect the testimony of the past week? That Jesus is enough and that he's satisfied. If not, we need to take a moment to prepare your heart to repent. And if you can't come to a full place of repentance, we ask you to abstain as an act of worship to the Lord. For the rest of us, may our hearts be stirred with joy as we remember the sacrifice of Christ and what he has provided for us, a satisfaction in the life that we would not have had otherwise. Would you bow your head as our deacons come forward, prepare the table, ask the Holy Spirit to help you know how to respond in this moment. Father, I pray that you would use this moment for your glory, that you would call people to yourself, that through this testimony, this gospel witness, there would be people who recognize their sin, their need, that their only hope is in Jesus. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, that you would call us to a place of faithfulness and obedience, as you did David. Maybe somebody in this, mor- this moment this morning has been confronted with sin. Father, would you lead them to a place of repentance? For those of us who have been in a place of repentance, may you stir our hearts for joy, with joy, reminding us of the satisfaction you've given us in Christ. Father, help us to honor you in this time, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Deacons.